0: Well, good morning. Today we're going to be continuing our study of Galatians. And in the last sermon on Galatians 5, we saw the details of the deeds of the flesh contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. And as a way of reminder, I'm going to read from you now from Galatians five nineteen through 23. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So against this backdrop of the deeds of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul directed us according to several ways that we are to treat one another. And it would be very easy to fall into a trap of seeing this passage as a list of do's and don'ts when it comes to living the Christian life. We're told to serve one another in verse 13. We're warned not to bite and devour one another in verse 15, so that we are not consumed by one another. In verse 26 wraps up chapter 5 with an admonition not to be- become boastful, challenging one another, or envying one another. So one very good Bible study uh, that you should all do sometime is to search the scriptures, and particularly the New Testament, for the words, one another. And in so doing, you'll discover a wealth of practical admonition on how the body of Christ um, is to love one another. And you'll find such excellent scriptures as these. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Romans 12.10 be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So then we pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. Romans fourteen nineteen. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Romans fifteen seven. And greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Romans sixteen sixteen. So that's just a sampling from the book of Romans alone. And as I mentioned last time, I'll mention again, the entire premise of the epistle to the Galatians is that we are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not saved through the works of the law. And that's the context by which Paul gives us these directions on how we should treat one another. So just as circumcision does not save anyone, neither do good works that we show or even fail to show to our neighbor. In spite of that, however, we are told how to treat one another. And verse 14 sums it up nicely, from Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So now that you know the background of Galatians so far, let's read today's passage. Brethren, if, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So last week we covered the entire uh, chapter 5. This week I'm narrowing in on just two verses from chapter 6. And these two verses hold several gems that I'd like to mine for God's glory and for your edification this morning. And I see at least six points in these two verses, and you may find others. But the ones that we're going to cover today are... These number one, what does it mean to be restored? And then number two, who is to be restored? Number three, to who is this imperative directed? Number four, in what manner is this instruction to be given? Number five, when obeying this command, guard yourself lest you be tempted. And number six, the result of bearing one another's burdens is the fulfilling of the law of Christ. So this entire passage pivots around restoring, quote, such a one. And that begs the question, what does it mean to restore in this context? Matthew Henry, a 17th century Presbyterian pastor, answers the question this way. The duty we are directed to, to restore such, we should labor by faithful reproofs and pertinent and seasonable counsels to bring them to repentance. The original word, "katar." TZT, which I don't know Greek, but I think it's the best I could do, signifies to set in joint as a dislocated bone. Accordingly, we should endeavor to set them in joint again, to bring them to themselves, by convincing them of their sin and error, persuading them to return to their duty, comforting them in a sense of pardoning mercy thereupon, and having thus recovered them, confirming our love to them. So basically... Restoring such a one involves calling them to repentance. If we we restore believers in this manner, we may very well be the means by which God grants them repentance. It's not an excusing of their sin, but rather an understanding of the struggle that they face. And in love, urging them to forsake their sin and to throw their trust upon Christ alone for their salvation and restoration. So then, who are the subject of the admonition given in this text? In other words, who is this text directed towards? If anyone is caught in any trespass, they are the ones to be restored. We already read earlier what trespasses Paul is referring to here. These are the deeds of the flesh given in chapter 5. So let's read through just the deeds here. Immorality, impurity, sensuality. Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. There we go. The things mentioned seem to be a very vile list of sins. And yet, we are admonished that true Christian believers who fall into these transgressions are to be restored. I've heard people who've taken part in many of these sins have the attitude that, well, God can never forgive me uh, for the evil things that I've done. So let's just pick out a couple of these. Sorcery. Can someone who previously practiced sorcery be forgiven and cleansed and brought into fellowship with Christ? Yes. And what's more, if they succumb to this temptation and fall into sin uh, again yet they have a true heart of repentance and sincerely desire to walk with God and leave behind their evil of sorcery, then the love of Christ is more than sufficient to forgive them 70 times 7 in all of their failings. So what about drunkenness? Can someone who previously spent all of their time in a drunken stupor or stoned out of their mind repent, turn to Christ, and be forgiven of their sin? Again, yes. And if that certain someone, even in their regenerate state, falls into temptation, and they fall back into the same sin again, we are promised in 1 John 1, 1.9 that we read in the call to repentance this morning. That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So then, those who are to be restored are simply sinners saved by grace. They are blood-bought believers who because of temptation of Satan and their own flesh have fallen again into the cesspool of their own sin. And now just because God's forgiveness is vast and immeasurable, don't use that as an excuse to sin. Paul tells us in Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Every true Christian believer should desire to walk perfectly with Christ and to turn away from their sin at every temptation. And yet this will come easier for some believers than it does for others. And none will be able to achieve this perfectly in this life. It's typically a measure of maturity and the degree of sanctification that any particular believer is walking in. And yet it should bring us great comfort that regardless of our sin, if we truly repent and desire to live godly lives God's grace toward us will never run out. And when I read the list of the deeds of the flesh, and there they are again for you up here, I found something conspicuously missing. And that word is heresies. Now just because we don't see the word heresies in the list of these deeds of the flesh doesn't mean it's not a sin. And just because we don't see it in this list doesn't mean that it's unforgivable. If you are a false teacher and you truly repent of the evil of blaspheming God by teaching His people falsely, not believe that there is even grace uh, for that abomination. However, in this context, and in this passage, Paul makes a huge contrast with the deeds of the flesh here, where we are to restore such believers in the faith when they've fallen into these various sins, and the wickedness of false teachers who are leading God's people astray. In fact, if for find the forgiveness for these vile offenders, you'll need to look elsewhere in Scripture because Paul is not going to coddle false teachers in Galatians. The list of the deeds of the flesh involve just that, deeds of the flesh. The sins we commit in our bodies are very temporal in nature. It's true that if we practice those things like we read earlier, um, in that we don't desire fellowship with Christ, instead, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, But for those false teachers who are misleading people, Paul declares back in Galatians 5.12, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. That's Galatians 5.12. And our Lord shared in this sentiment when He told us in all three of the synoptic Gospels, but quoting here in Mark 9.42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. So I mentioned earlier people doubting whether God will forgive them of all the evil things that they've done, and how God's, how that God's grace is bigger than any of their sins. And I firmly believe that the ones who should be asking this question are not the immoral drug addict, sorcerers, but rather the false smiling teachers on TV, as he guilts babies in Christ to send them their last few dollars that they have to live on. So I recently watched a movie called Forevermore. It was a story of Carla Faye Tucker. In 1998, she became the first woman to be executed in Texas in over 100 years. She started doing drugs when she was 8 years old. She sold her body into prostitution to pay for her drug habit. And in 1983, she brutally murdered two people with a pickaxe. Carla Fay was a hardened criminal, but there in the prison on death row, Christ found her and called her into his kingdom. And She repented of her sins and placed her faith in Jesus Christ alone to forgive her. The movie gave an accurate portrayal of her newfound faith, and hers was a completely changed life. And though, while watching the movie, I could tell that her theology wasn't perfect, and there were things that she could have learned from attending a solid church under the faithful teaching of the scriptures. She never had that opportunity. What she knew, she learned right there in the prison from the prison chaplains and from others who would come in to speak. But hers, um, let's see, I could, t- and there were things that she could have learned from the solid church that she didn't. Um, but she went to her death with a smile on her face anxiously awaiting the time that she would see Christ face to face. And I have no doubt that I will see my sister Carla in heaven when I get there. On the other hand, unless God really, truly grants repentance, false teachers such as Kenneth Copeland, Jesse Duplantis, and Pope Francis will suffer eternal torment and punishment for the way they they have abused Christ's church. And I want to mention here Pope Francis as representative of the office of Pope. And there have been better popes than him and there have been worse popes than him. But I believe, as is written in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, that the Pope of Rome is the Antichrist presented in the book of Revelation. And in this picture he's seen here performing the magical act of changing wine into the actual blood of Christ, if you believe that. Now, Jesse Duplantis, he's the one pictured here with the jet. um, He's a very funny guy. When I was in the charismatic movement, I used to love to hear him speak. He's from Louisiana, and he carries that deep Louisiana accent. But it seems that early in his life, he discovered that he could make a lot more money as a televangelist than he could ever dream about as a comedian. When Galatians is talking about anyone caught in their trespass, it seems clear that he's talking about helping brothers and sisters in their Christian walk, being an accountability partner, uh, pointing them to Christ when they're struggling with temptation, just being a Christian friend who can pray with them and by God's grace be the best example of Christ that you can be to them. And I see a difference between sincere believers walking out their sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit and the help of their Christian friends and those false teachers who are fleecing the flock And I see that as a comparison of being, as comparing a man in his household, gently instructing his children, comparing that same man to the one aggressively defending his wife against someone who would do her harm. Our Lord Jesus, through his body, the church, disciples us as Christian believers. And and while through his kingly office, defends us against the attacks of the enemy. So then, we've talked about the command of um, is to restore such a one. And we've talked about who the ones are that are to be restored. So now let's take a look at who this command is given to. The text reads, you who are spiritual. And what comes to your mind when you hear those words? And I wanted, what I want you to do is make a concerted effort not to interpret you who are spiritual to mean what it does in our modern sense, in our modern culture. Have you ever heard the phrase I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And that sounds very pious, uh, but whatever their definition of spiritual is, more than anything, it seems as though it's a spurning of God's law. Maybe spiritual, to those who would make this claim, is that they regularly practice yoga or Eastern mysticism, where they empty their mind to gain some elusive inner peace. But what does the scripture say about those who are spiritual? We read in 1 Corinthians two fourteen through 16 but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now also, remember in our context, in chapter 5 we read the fruits of the Spirit which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we are admonished in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So then the one who is spiritual is simply every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has a desire to walk by the Spirit and have the Spirit of the living God work through him or her. So when you first read this passage, you may have interpreted this to mean a church elder or a deacon. And while it's true that these men should meet the definition of spiritual that we just read about, uh, so should every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if that is you, then this passage from Galatians is speaking directly to you. On a practical basis, how can you as a believer walk this out? And maybe you feel that you have nothing to offer to other believers, Maybe you're a new believer yourself, and you feel that you're the one, one of the ones who needs to be restored, and that may be true, yet each of us are in different places in our Christ, Christian walk. I've learned through my spiritual walk that I always meet those who are either more mature in Christ than I am, or less mature in Christ than I am. And oftentimes these maturity levels may be according to particular attributes of strengths or weaknesses in an individual so that I may meet a brother who's stronger in the Lord than I am in one area, and he may be weaker than I am in another area where I can help him out. God sovereignly ordains those who cross my path, and so he does with each one of you. This is the body of Christ, together in action. And together we're stronger than we are individually. And that's by design. That's why the Lord gathers his church into local assemblies. And we're told in Hebrews 10... Twenty three through twenty five. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So now we've learned that each of you is commissioned to restore your brother or sister. But how exactly are we to carry out this instruction? We are told to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So right off the bat, notice that this is one of the fruits of the Spirit that was covered in chapter 5 when we read of gentleness. See how the context plays such an important role in the reading of Scripture? What does gentleness mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is to make excuse for sin or look over it. Let's look at an example of how Jesus gently restored the woman caught in adultery. So if you would, turn your Bibles to John 8, beginning in verse 3. I'm not going to put the whole passage on the screen because it's it's oh, rather lengthy. I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. So from John 8, verses 3 through 11, we read, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman... Caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman, where she was in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. So notice a few things about this passage. First of all, the scribes of the Pharisees were pretty abrupt in the way they approached this. <clears throat> not only were they ready and willing to stone her, it was a test to see whether or not Jesus would be soft on sin or not. And the scriptures don't tell us what Jesus was writing in the sand on the ground. Some commentators suggest that it could have been the name and sin of each scribe and Pharisee who was standing there accusing her. And notice also that when he responded, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her, that they begin to leave one by one, beginning with the older ones. It's likely that the older guys were more mature, and they had a greater sense of their own sin, whereas the younger guys only admitted their sin once they saw their elders admit to theirs. Jesus' words to the woman were gentle, but they were not excusing of her sin either. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. So we would considering constructing in a spirit of gentleness, for those of you who are parents, <clears throat> uh, think of how we are told as fathers to correct our children. Ephesians 6.4 tells us, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath or to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I'll be the first to tell you that this isn't always easy. I'm the father of nine children, and all nine of them have tested their boundaries um, at many times. And my children can attest that I've not always obeyed this command not to provoke them to anger. And yet when I fail at it, the results of the instruction to the children is never as effective as it is when I do obey this passage in the scripture. And of course the scripture is always perfect at telling us how to relate to people. We read in Proverbs 15.1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's no wonder then that Galatians 6.1 tells us to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Consider how it feels when you're the one being corrected or restored. Think back to all the teachers or the instructors that you've had, whether in your personal life or on the job or in the church, on a sports team or whatever. Which of these teachers were your favorite and why? I would venture the guess that if I were to interview each of you and ask you that question, I would hear a common theme emerge that the best teachers were the ones who taught you in a spirit of gentleness. They corrected you, but they did it in such a way that you wanted to improve in order to please them as much as in addition to the other benefits of doing things the right way. I've never been in the military, but I've certainly seen in the movies or on TV the drill sergeant yelling into the face of a private, very harsh orders, often with unreasonable expectations. But I've also seen theatrical renditions of of military leaders who never had to raise their voice, and yet their very presence uh, commanded the admiration and respect of those under their lead. So i ask you, which of these two types of leaders would you rather follow into battle? The next part of the scripture points out that we should look to ourselves so that we will not be tempted. I had a friend once ask me whether he should continue to keep company with a professed believer who is living in sin. And certainly there's a time and a place to shun such a person, as we read in 1 Corinthians 5.11. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But let's say the professed believer does show remorse when he acts out in these ways, and what if he truly is repentant, but he repeatedly falls into the same sins? It's possible that the stronger brother could help such a one by doing what this passage says and restoring such a one in the spirit of gentleness. However, what if the sin that your brother is committing is also a sin that you are tempted by? For instance, if your brother's sin is drunkenness, and this very sin is the one that you've struggled with in the past, and you still succumb to it more than you wished, That simply being around someone engaging in that particular sinful behavior could entice you to join them in their sin. And many are quick to point out that our Lord Jesus was around uh, tax collectors and sinners. But I would point out that he's the only one who has ever lived uh, that was without sin. And he would have certainly not been tempted by these banal sins of the tax collectors. It's easy to think of yourself more highly than you ought to. We think that we are strong bastions of holiness who would never fall into temptation. And yet we rem- remember our own frailties. In 1 Corinthians 10:12, we read, "Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall." So first of all, I want you to consider Moses. <clears throat> the scripture tells us in Numbers 12:3 that Moses was very humble, more than any man who is on the face of the earth. And yet Moses fell into the temptation of anger. Prior to this episode, God had instructed Moses to strike the rock in order to bring water out of it for the children of Israel. The Israelites were a bunch of whiny complainers who blamed Moses every time they got uncomfortable and grew tired of their conditions. So we read in Numbers 20, verses 8 through 12. Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, And speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beast drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded them. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and water came forth abundantly. And the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. It's from Numbers 28-12. Next one I want you to consider is King David. In First Samuel thirteen fourteen, the scripture calls him a man after God's own heart. And yet he succumbed to the temptation of a beautiful woman who was not his wife. <clears throat> after he committed adultery with her, she conceived. And David tried to hide his sin by calling Uriah home in hopes that he would lay with his wife and that Uriah would believe that the child was his. But Uriah was more honorable than that and refused to go to his home, but camped outside in the courtyard, just as his fellow warriors were doing on the battlefield. When David was unable to cover his sin in that way, he resorted to murder to get rid of Uriah. And in David's case, one sin led to another in a downward spiral, until Nathan the prophet confronted him in in a not-so-gentle way. Being the man after God's own heart, David felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and penned one of the most heartfelt expressions of true repentance found in Scripture. And that would be from Psalm 51. So if Moses and David, who were two very godly men and leaders of Israel, could fall prey to temptation, don't be so arrogant as to think that it could never happen to you. Now on the subject of temptation, Satan knows exactly what you may be tempted by. If you are tempted by beautiful women like David... He will make sure to bring plenty of them past you. If you are tempted to anger, He will orchestrate circumstances to cause you great consternation. Look how He tipped the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is very God in the flesh. He never sinned. So let us read together the account of how Satan tipped Him from Matthew 4, 1-11. That Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tipped by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So what, what I want you to notice here is that Satan is not stupid. If Christ could have sinned, it would have been in one of these areas of his temptation. But Christ did not fail. Moses failed, and David failed, and Christ didn't. But you aren't Christ. So then Galatians 6.1 explicitly warns us not to fall into the very same sins that our brother is committing when we are trying to be a help to them. God is sovereign and he's more than able to send another one of his servants to minister to to his wayward child who is not tempted by the very same thing that, that you may be. There's no reason to place yourself in harm's way to possibly make matters worse when you're trying to help. In verse 2 of Galatians 6, Paul instructs us to bear one another's burdens. This could be very well be another way of, of stating to restore such a one that we talked extensively about above. Or there could be another meaning here. I'll let John Gill, an 18th century um, English Baptist pastor who pastored the same church as Charles Spurgeon a century early, earlier, explain. He writes in his exposition of the scriptures on this verse. Bear ye one another's burdens, which may be understood either of sins, which are heavy burdens to sensible sinners, to all that are partakers of the grace of God. Christ is only able to bear these burdens, so as to remove them and take them away, which he has done by his blood, sacrifice and satisfaction. Saints bear one another's, not by making satisfaction for them, which they are not able to do, nor by conniving at them and suffering them upon them, which they should not do, but by gently reproving them, by comforting them when overpressed with guilt, by sympathizing with them in their sorrow, by praying to God for to manifest His pardoning grace to them, and by forgiving them themselves, so far as they are faults committed against them. Or else, the frailties and infirmities of weak saints which are troublesome and apt to make uneasy are meant and which are to be bore by the strong, by making themselves easy with them and by accommodating themselves to their weakness and by abridging themselves of some liberties, which otherwise might be lawfully taken by them or afflictions may be designed, which are grievous to the flesh and are bore by others when they administer help and relief under them, whether in a temporal or spiritual way and when they could Stole them and sympathize with them, bear apart with them, and make others' griefs and sorrows their own. So That's a, a very Puritan way to express, basically, you're either restoring them the way that Matthew Henry described in their sin and encouraging them to go to Christ, or you're bearing with them in some other area of weakness because of their immaturity and in ways that you may, as Paul had described, not use all of your liberties by causing another brother to stumble. So whether it is an example of the urging of repentance or simply bearing with the weakness of weaker brothers, we are urged to bear these burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, Some of you who may be familiar with the conflict between law and gospel may be confused upon hearing the words, the law of Christ. After all, this entire epistle of Galatians, we've, we've read over and over and over again how we are not justified by law, but we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We are admonished not to trust in the works of the law for our salvation. So what does Paul mean when he talks about the law of Christ here? The law of Christ is simply love. John thirteen, thirty-four through thirty-five reads: A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this I all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now the world's definition of love is corrupted. In the world's eyes, if you love someone, you won't call their behavior, or their so-called identity, sinful. It's so telling and relevant that the Holy Word of God places verse 2 here right after verse 1. So whether bearing one another's burdens is a restatement of of restoring such a one or not, the immediate context is that the most loving thing you could do for another brother or sister in Christ is to come alongside of them and correct them gently in their sin, point them to Christ as the ultimate one who can restore them. And sometimes people say that the opposite of love is hate. And I'm not sure that that's accurate. So yes, if you hate someone, then you probably don't simultaneously love them. But I tend to think that the opposite of love is more likely selfishness. You may enjoy someone's company as long as that someone is meeting your need or pleasing you in some way. But the moment that you're called to sacrifice for them in any way, you could tell if you really have love for them. Here are the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. First Corinthians 13, 4-7. When we read bears all things, it sure sounds a lot like bear one another's burdens, doesn't it? So what the gist of what the Holy Spirit is saying here through Paul is telling us in these two verses is that as the body of Christ, we love one another, we support one another, we encourage one another in righteousness. So I ask you this morning, is that your desire? And I pray that the Lord would use you to that end. And one of the ways that we support and love one another is, is joining together on the, the first Lord's Day of each month to celebrate the Lord's Table. We call it communion, and it can be thought of as a common union. Each of us is in union with Christ individually, and as a body, we share that union with one another. It's a time of remembrance for what the Lord has done for us. It's a celebration of His death, His burial, and His resurrection. It's both a solemn and a joyous time. So I want to point out this morning that this is the Lord's table and not just the table of Northwest Bible Church. So if you've made a profession of faith in Christ and um, and you've been baptized, then I would invite you to partake of the Lord's table with us. Uh, The Lord's table is for believers only. So if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then I would ask you to let the elements pass you by as they come. Before we start with the Lord's table, we are told in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight through 30 But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. So at this time, let's take a few minutes to silently pray and repent of any known sin in our lives before coming to the table. Father, we do come before you this morning. And Lord, we let each of us repent. I pray that you would give the the gift of repentance to us. Call to our remembrance how we have sinned against you, sinned against our brothers and sisters in Christ, and cause us to repent. And uh, we pray that you would purify our hearts and let us come before you with uh, clean hands and a pure heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name.